this is a reading of Marcus Zusak's I Am the Messenger, part four, chapters three and four. And before I begin chapter four, or I'm sorry, chapter three, I just want to revisit really quickly the idea that as chapter two of part four ended, Ed Kennedy revisited the cards that he has received up to this point. Uh, he takes them out of the drawer. The stone from the Tatupu family is there. He goes through the cards, reading them all, and he has fatigue. He says at the end of chapter two, though the fatigue in my eyes makes the words swap and turn and juggle, I feel eroded. And then he talks about Dreaming, he says, in moments of awakeness, I remember the diamonds, relive the clubs, and even smile about the spades. And that is the order in which he received messages. The first part was diamonds, the second clubs, and then spades, and now part four is hearts. But he says he worries about the hearts. He doesn't want to sleep in case he dreams of them. So chapter two does end even though this part is the Ace of Hearts, I feel like the fatigue is mounting for Ed of all that he has done and what it's all going to come to, to the point that he is even afraid of sleeping because he's afraid almost of his dreams. So that's something to keep in mind as we continue on. This is Chapter 3 of Part 4 called The Casual Suit. Tradition can be a dirty word, especially around Christmas. Families all over the globe get together and enjoy each other's company for all of a few minutes. For an hour, they endure each other. After that, they just manage to stomach each other. I go over to Ma's place after an uneventful morning with Richie and Marv. All we did was eat leftovers from the night before and play a few games of annoyance. It wasn't the same without Audrey, and it didn't take long for us to pack up and for the other two to leave. The usual agreement with my family is for a 12 o'clock meeting time at Ma's place. My sisters are there with their kids and husbands, and Tommy's shown up with a stunning girl he's managed to pick up at university. This is Ingrid. He introduces her, and I must say, Ingrid is calendar-worthy. She has long brown hair, a lovely tanned face, and a body I'd let myself dissolve in. Nice to meet you, she says. Lovely voice, too. I've heard a lot about you, Ed. She's lying, of course, and I decide not to go along with it. This year, I simply don't have the strength. I say, no, you haven't, Ingrid, but I remain pleasant as I say it. I'm almost shy. She's too beautiful to get annoyed with. Beautiful girls get away with murder. Oh, you're here, says Ma when she sees me. Merry Christmas, Ma, I shout excitedly, and I'm sure everyone picks up on the sarcasm in my voice. We eat, we give presents. I give Lee's and Catherine's kids a hundred airplane rides and piggybacks, or at least until I can't stand up anymore. I also catch Tommy with his hands all over Ingrid in the lounge room, right near the famous cedar coffee table. Shit, sorry, and I back away from the room. Good luck to him. By quarter to four, it's time to go and pick up Mila. I kiss my sisters, shake the hands of my brothers-in-law, and say a final goodbye to the kids. Last to get here, first to leave, says Ma, blowing out some cigarette smoke. She smokes a lot at Christmas. 
and he lives the closest, which nearly makes me throw my temper from my skin and hurl it at her. Cheating on Dad, I think. Insulting me at every turn. I want so much to verbally abuse this woman standing there in the kitchen, sucking in smoke and pouring it out from her lungs. Instead, I look right at her. I speak through the warm mist. The smoking makes you ugly, I say, and I walk out, leaving her stranded among the haze. On the front lawn as I leave, I'm called back twice, first by Tommy, then Ma. Tommy comes out and says, You doing all right, Ed? I walk back. I'm doing fine, Tommy. It's been a crazy year, but I'm doing fine. You? We sit on the front steps, which are half in shadow, half in the sun. As it happens, I sit in the darkness, and Tommy sits in the light. Quite symbolic, really. It's the first time I've felt comfortable all day as my brother and I talk and answer each other's brief questions. University okay? Yeah, the marks have been good, better than I hoped. And Ingrid? There's a silence before we can't contain it anymore. It breaks between us and we both laugh. It feels very boyish, but I'm congratulating him and Tommy's congratulating himself. She's not bad, he says, and genuinely I tell my brother that I'm proud of him. And not for Ingrid. Ingrid means nothing in comparison to what I'm talking about. I say, good for you, Tommy. Plant my hand on his back and stand up. Good luck. As I walk down the steps, he says, I'll call you sometime. We'll get together. But again, I can't go along with it. I turn and speak with a quietness that surprises even me. I say, I doubt you will, Tommy. And it feels good. It feels nice to emerge from the lies. Tommy agrees. He says, you're right, Ed. We're still brothers, and who knows? Maybe one day, one day I feel certain we'll get together and remember and tell and speak many things. Things bigger than University and Ingrid. Just not soon. For now, I walk across the lawn and say, Bye, Tommy. Thanks for coming out. And I'm satisfied with just one thing. I'd wanted to stay on that porch with him until the sun shone bright on both of us, but I didn't. I stood up and walked down the steps. I'd rather chase the sun than wait for it. As Tommy goes in and I leave again, Ma comes out. Ed, she calls. I face her. She walks closer and says, Merry Christmas, all right? Same to you. Then I add, it's the person, Ma, not the place. If you left here, you'd have been the same anywhere else. It's truth enough, but I can't stop now. If I ever leave this place, I swallow. I'll make sure I'm better here first. Okay, Ed. She's stunned, and I feel sorry for the woman standing on the front porch of a poor street in an ordinary town. That sounds fair. See you later, Ma. I'm gone. That had to be done. I drop in at home for a quick drink and go to Mila's. When I get there, she's waiting eagerly, wearing a light blue summer dress and holding a present. She also holds an excitement across her face. For you, Jimmy, she says, handing me the big flat box. I feel bad because I don't have a gift for her. I'm sorry, I begin to say, but she shuts me up quickly with a wave of her hand. It's enough that you came back for me, she says. Are you going to open it? No, I'll wait. And I offer the old lady my arm. She takes it and we leave her house, heading over to my place. I ask if we should get a cab, but she's happy to walk. And halfway there, I'm not sure if she's going to make it. She coughs hard and struggles for air. I imagine myself having to carry her. She makes it, though, and I give her some wine And when we get there. Thank you, Jimmy, she says. But she sinks into the armchair and falls asleep almost straight away. 
As she remains there, I come back a few times to check she's still alive, but I can always hear her breathing. In the end, I sit in the lounge room with her as the day dies outside the window. When she wakes up, we eat turkey from last night and some bean salad. Marvelous, Jimmy, the old lady beams. Just marvelous. Her smile crackles. In normal circumstances, I'd prefer to shoot someone who uses the word marvelous, but it suits Mila down to the ground. She wipes her mouth and mutters, marvelous, several times, and I feel like Christmas is complete. Now, she slaps the arm of the chair. She seems much more alive now that she slept a little. Will you open your present, Jimmy? I give in, of course. I go over to the gift-wrapped box and lift the lid. Inside is a casual black suit in an ocean blue shirt. It's probably the first and last suit anyone will ever buy me. You like? She asks. It's great. I fall in love with it instantly, despite knowing I rarely, if ever, I'll rarely, if ever, get a chance to wear it. Put it on, Jimmy. I'm going, I say. I'm going. And once I've disappeared to the bedroom to put it on, I find an old pair of black shoes to match. The suit doesn't have big shoulders, which is a relief. I'm excited to get back out there to show her, but when I come out, Mila's asleep again. So I sit, in the suit. When she wakes up, the old lady says, Oh, that's a nice suit, Jimmy. She even touches it to feel the fabric. Where'd you get it from? I stand a moment confused before realizing that she's completely forgotten. I give the old lady a kiss on the cheek. A beautiful woman gave it to me, I say. The old lady's marvelous. That's lovely, she says. It is, I agree. She's right. After we've had coffee, I call a cab and go home with her. The driver's actually Simon, the boyfriend, earning some double time on Christmas Day. Before I take Mila inside, I ask him to wait. It's laziness, I know, but I've got the money today and I can afford the trip home. Well, thanks again, Jimmy, Mila says, and she walks shakily to the kitchen. She's so frail, yet so beautiful. It's been a great day, she tells me, and I can't help but agree. It has. It hits me that all along I thought I was doing this old lady a favor by spending Christmas Day with her. Walking out again in my casual black suit, I realize it's the opposite. I'm the privileged one, and the old lady will always be marvelous. Back home? The boyfriend asks me when I return to the cab. Yes, please. I sit in the front seat and the boyfriend initiates conversation. He seems intent on discussing Audrey, though I wish he wouldn't. He says, So you and Audrey have been friends for years, huh? I look at the dash. Probably more than years. He comes at me. Do you love her? I'm taken aback by the frankness of this question, especially so early in the dialogue. I come to the conclusion that he knows it's only a short drive. He wants to maximize outcomes quickly, which is fair enough. He asks again, well, well, what? Now don't start on me, Kennedy. Do you love her or not? What do you think? He rubs his chin, says nothing. So I continue. I say, whether I love her isn't the question at all. Whether she loves you is what you want to know. My voice trounces him. I'm all over the poor guy, isn't it? Well, he trips about as he drives, and I see he deserves at least some form of an answer. She doesn't want to love you, I tell him. She doesn't want to love anyone. She's had a rough life, Audrey. The only people she ever loved, she hated. I get some flashbacks of when we were growing up. She was hurt a lot. She vowed it wouldn't continue that way. She wouldn't let it. The boyfriend says nothing. 
He's handsome, I decide, more handsome than me. He has soft eyes and a solid jaw. The whiskers on his face give him that male model look. We're silent till we pull up back at my place, and the boyfriend speaks again. He says, She loves you, Ed. I look at him, but she wants you, and that's the problem. Here, I pass the money, but he waves it away. On the house, he says, but I try again, and this time he takes it. Don't put it in the till, I suggest. I think you've earned it for your own pocket today. We share a moment before I get out. Nice talking to you. I say and we shake hands. Merry Christmas to you, Simon. I guess he's Simon now, not the boyfriend. Once inside, I sleep on the couch in my casual black suit and the ocean blue shirt. Merry Christmas, Ed. Chapter 4, To Feel the Fear. I work on Boxing Day and visit Bernie at the Bell Street Cinema the next day. Ed Kennedy... He cries out when I get there, back for more, eh? No, I tell him I need your help, Bernie. Immediately he comes closer and asks, what can I do for you? Well, you know your movies, right? Of course you can watch anything you... Shh, just tell me, Bernie. Tell me everything you know about these titles. I pull out the Ace of Hearts, although I could easily recite them without it. The Suitcase, Cat Baloo, and Roman Holiday. Bernie clicks into business straight away. Roman Holiday, I have, but the other two I don't. He inundates me with facts. Roman Holiday is widely considered one of the best movies starring Gregory Peck, made in 1953 and directed by William Wyler of Ben-Hur fame. It was filmed with breathtaking beauty in Rome and was famous for the glorious performance of Audrey Hepburn, who Peck insisted have equal billing. He claimed that if she didn't, he would be a laughing stock. Such was the strength of her performance. This was backed up when she pocketed an Oscar for her troubles. He talks on at a very fast pace, but I rewind to one word that Bernie has spoken. Audrey, I think. Audrey, I say. Yes, he looks at me, disoriented by my ignorance. Yes, Audrey Hepburn. She was absolutely marv. No, don't say marvelous, I beg. That word belongs to Mila. Audrey Hepburn. I almost shout, what can you tell me about the other two? Well, I've got a catalog, Bernie explains. It's even bigger than the one I showed you last time. It contains just about every movie ever released. Actors, directors, cinematographers, soundtracks, musical scores, the lot. He brings back the thick book and offers it to me. First up, Cat Baloo. I read aloud as soon as I find the page. Starring Lee Marvin in one of his most famous roles. I stop because I found it. I go back and read the name again. Lee Marvin. Now I move on to the suitcase. As soon as I find it, I read the, la the cast list in the director. The director of the suitcase is someone called Pablo Sanchez. He and Richie share the same last name. And I have my three addresses. Richie, Marv, Audrey. There's an express exhilaration that is quickly replaced by anxiety. I hope the messages are good, I think, but something tells me this won't be easy. There must be good reason these three were left to last. As well as being my friends, they'll also be the most challenging messages I have to deliver. I can feel it. I hold the card and drop the catalog book to the counter. Bernie's concerned. What is it, Ed? I look at him and say, wish me luck, Bernie. Wish me the heart to get through this. He does. 
Still holding the card, I walked out into the street. Outside, I meet the darkness and uncertainty of what will come next. I feel the fear, but I walk fast toward it. The smell of street struggles to get its hands on me, but I shrug it off and walk on. Each time, a shudder makes its way to my arm and legs. I walk harder, deciding if Audrey needs me and Richie and Marv, I have to hurry. Fear is in the street. Fear is the street. Fear is every step. The darkness grows heavier on the road and I begin to run. My first instinct tells me to go straight to Audrey's. I want to make it there as fast as possible to ease whatever problem she has. I don't even dare to contemplate the fact that I might need to perform something unpleasant. Just get there, I tell myself, but then it's another instinct that takes control. I walk on, but pull the card up and hold it in front of my eyes. I check the order. Richie, Marv, Audrey. A strong feeling reaches out in front of me and drags with it a knowledge that I have to go in order. Audrey's last for a reason, and I know it. First up's Richie. Yes, I agree with my thoughts, and I keep walking hard. I make my way to Richie's place on Bridge Street. I work out the quickest way there, and my feet move further and faster. Am I hurrying so I can make it quicker to Audrey? I ask, but I give no answer. I focus on Richie. A vision of his face comes to me as I pass under the branches of a tree. I brush through the leaves and wipe him from my sight, hearing his voice and the constant remarks during cards. I remember his Christmas joy at Marv's kiss with the doorman. Richie, I wonder, what message do I deliver to Richie? I'm clearly there now. The corner of Bridge Street is up ahead. My pulse goes into spasm and gains momentum. As I round the bend, I see Richie's place, and immediately a question of shock stands beside me and breathes at my face. I see the lights in Richie's kitchen and in the lounge room, but my path is distracted by one thought. It refuses to leave. What do I do now? It asks me. Every other place was relatively easy because I didn't really know the people, excluding Ma. And when I was sitting in that Italian restaurant, I had no idea I was waiting for her. So there wasn't much choice. I just waited for the opportunity to rise. But with Richie, Marv, and Audrey, I know them all far too well to loiter around their houses. It's the last thing I would ever do. Still, I weigh it up for close to a minute and eventually decide to cross the road and sit against an old oak tree to wait. I'm there nearly an hour. And to be perfectly honest, not a whole lot's happening. I noticed that Richie's folks are home from their holiday. I saw his ma doing the dishes. It's getting late. Soon it's only their kitchen that's lit up. House lights across the whole street are being cut down at the knees, and all that's left are the street lights. In the Sanchez house, a lone figure has walked in and sits at the kitchen table. I know without question that it's Richie. For a moment I consider going in, but before I get a chance to rise to my feet... I hear some people moving in my direction from down the street. Soon, there are two men standing above me. They're eating pies. One of them looks down and speaks at me. He looks at me with a kind of familiar, indifferent disdain and says, We were told we might find you here, Ed. He shakes his head and throws down a pie, obviously bought from a local service station. As it drops to the ground, he says, You're a dead-set shocker, aren't you? I look up, completely lost for words. Well, Ed, 
It's the other one talking now, and as ludicrous as it sounds, it's actually quite hard to recognize them without their baklava. Balaclavas. Daryl? I ask, yes. Keith? Correct. Daryl sits down now and gives me the pie. For old time's sake, he explains. Right. I reply, still in shock. Thanks. Memories of their last visit start to hurry me. Crowded thoughts of blood, words, and the dirty kitchen floor. I have to ask it. You're not going to... It's still a little hard to speak. What? Says Keith this time, sitting at my other side. Learn or lean on you a little? Well, I say yes. In an act of good faith, Daryl opens the plastic wrapper of my pie and hands it back to me. Oh no, Ed. No touch-ups today. Nothing of the sort. He allows a nostalgic laugh to exit his lips. He makes it sound like we're old war buddies or something. Mind you, if you get smart on us, he gets comfortable on the ground. He has pale skin and a face infested with fight scars, but he somehow still manages to be handsome. Keith, on the other hand, has a face bulleted with old acne, a pointy nose, and a crooked chin. I look over at him and say, Jesus, mate, I think I liked you better with the mask on. Daryl lets out a shot of laughter. Keith, by comparison, is not impressed, or at least not to begin with. Soon he calms down, and the feeling among us is good. I guess it really is because we've been through something together, even if from totally different sides. For a minute or so, we sit and eat. Any sauce? I ask. I told you. Keith accuses Daryl. What? Well, I said we should get you some sauce, Ed. Keith explains, but tight arse over there wouldn't hear of it. Daryl throws back his head before answering. Look, he begins. Sauce is too dangerous. He points a finger at my shirt. Look what Ed's wearing there, Keith, huh? Tell me, what color is it? I know what color it is, Daryl. There's no need to get all condescending again. Again? When the hell am I ever condescending? They're almost shouting across me now as I take another bite of the half-cold pie. Right now, continues Keith, he attempts to bring me into it, asking, What about you, Ed? What would you say? His eyes are pointed right at me. Is Daryl being condescending? I decide to answer Daryl's original question. I'm wearing a white shirt, I say. Exactly. Daryl responds, Exactly what? Exactly, Keith. It is simply far too dangerous for Ed to even contemplate eating that pie with sauce. His tone is definitely condescending now. It'll drip off, land on that lovely white shirt, and the poor bastard will end up having to wash the bloody thing. We don't want that now, do we? I'm not going to kill It's not going to kill him to wash it. Keith's particularly vehement on this point. He can put a load on while he's washing that shit-heap dog of his... That'll take at least a few hours or so. Now, there's no need to bring the doorman into it, I protest. He hasn't done anything. Exactly, Daryl agrees. That was uncalled for, Keith. Keith cools down a moment and admits it. His head drops. I know. He even apologizes. Sorry, Ed. And I can tell that this time they've been ordered to be on their best behavior toward me. That's probably why they're having double the arguments with each other. They go on a while longer, till they've both apologized, and for a while, we talk among the night that has dripped upon us with silence. We're all quite happy, with Daryl telling jokes about men walking into bars, women with shotguns, and then wives, sisters, and brothers, who would all sleep with the milkman for a million dollars. 
Yes, we're all quite happy until the light goes off in Richie's kitchen. That's when I stand up and say, great. I turn to the two best arguers I've ever met and tell them I've missed my chance. They seem unconcerned. Your chance at what? Daryl asks, you know. I tell him, but he only shakes his head. He says, no, Ed. As a matter of fact, I don't. I only know that this is your next message and you still don't seem to be thinking clearly about what you're supposed to be doing. His voice is so casual, but so heavy with something else. Truth, I think. That's what the voice weighs in with. He's right. I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm still guessing as I stand here hoping that the answers will simply come. Daryl and Keith stand up next to me under the oak. It's Keith who deals last questions from my left side. He feeds the words into my ears with a coarse, gentle, knowing voice. Close, so close to me, he says. What are you even doing here, Ed? The words loom nearer still and crawl into my ear. Why are you standing here waiting? You should know what to do. He rests a moment before delivering the final deluge of words. They enter me like a flood. Richie's one of your best friends, Ed. You don't need to think about anything or wait or decide what to do. You know already without any question or doubt, don't you? He repeats it now. Don't you, Ed? I stagger back and slide down the tree where I was sitting. The two figures still stand looking at the house. My voice trips forward, landing on the ground at their feet. You know what to do, I think. Yes, I answer, I know. Visions tear me up. There are pieces of me on the ground. Keith and Daryl walk off. Hooray, says one of them, but I don't know which. I want to stand up and chase them and ask them and beg them to tell me who's behind this and why, but I can't. All I'm able to do is sit there and collect the shredded pieces of everything I just saw. I saw Richie. I saw myself. Now with the tree above me, I attempt to deny it and stand up, but my stomach drops and I sit down again. I'm sorry, Richie, I whisper, but I have to. If my stomach was a color, I think it would be black, like tonight. And I steady myself and begin what feels like an endless walk home. When I get there, I do the dishes. They're piled up on the sink. And the last thing I wash is a clear, flat knife. It reflects the kitchen light, and I catch my own face lukewarm inside the metal. I'm oval and distorted. I'm cut off at the edges. The last things I see are the words I need to speak with Richie. At that, I place the knife on the rack, on top of the mountain of clean dishes. It slips and clangs to the floor, then spins like a clock hand. My face appears in it three times as it circles the room. First time, I see Richie in my eyes. Then I see Marv. Then Audrey. I pick it up and hold it in my hand. I wish I could hold up that knife and tear open the world. I'd slice it open and climb through to the next one. In bed, I cling to that thought. There are three cards in my drawer and one in my hand. As sleep stands above me, I gently press my finger to the edge of the ace of hearts. The card is cool and sharp. I hear a clock ticking. Everything watches impatiently. And so that is the end of chapter four, which is a bit of a cliffhanger because we don't have an answer about what Ed's message was supposed to be to Richie. And it is probably coming up in the next chapter that is called Richie's Sin. 
So to be continued. Until next time. This is a reading of chapters 5 and 6 of I Am the Messenger, part 4, by Marcus Zusak. In chapters 3 and 4, the messages that Ed is receiving have gotten closer to home as they involve his best friends, um, Audrey, Marv, and Richie. And um, I think that the mystery is kind of building about what those messages are going to involve with his friends. And chapter four had a line about Richie, Ed's friend, wishing that he could want, that he wishes he had the trait of wanting. So we will see what that's all about. So this is chapter 5 of I Am the Messenger, part 4, called Richie's Sin. Name, David Sanchez, also known as Richie. Age, 20. Occupation, none. Achievements, none. Ambitions, none. Likelihood of ever attaining answers to the previous three questions, none. The next time I go to Richie's house on Bridge Street... I find the place completely dark. I almost leave until the light jump starts on the kitchen on in the kitchen. It flicks and dies several times before forcing itself alive. A silhouette arrives and sits at the kitchen table. It's Richie for sure. I can tell by the shape of the hair and the way he moves and sits down. When I move closer I discover he's listening to the radio. It's mostly talk back with a few songs thrown in. Faintly I hear it. I hide myself as close as I can without being caught out and listen. The voices from the radio blur and reach out, words like arms that land and rest heavily on Richie's shoulders. I imagine the whole scene of the kitchen, a toaster with crumbs around it, half-dirty oven, white but fading laminex, the red plastic-covered chairs with holes picked in them, cheap Leno floor, and Richie. I try to imagine his face as he sits there listening. I remember Christmas Eve and Richie's words, I don't feel like going home tonight. I see the eyes that drag themselves toward me, and I see now that anything would be better than sitting alone in his kitchen. With Richie, it's always hard to imagine a pained look on his face because of his relaxed manner. I saw a glimpse that Christmas Eve, though, and I revisit it again now. I also imagine his hands. They sit on the kitchen table, wrapped together, gently moving and pushing down. They're half pale and frustrated. They have nothing to do. The light smothers him. He sits there for nearly an hour, and the radio seems to fade out more than anything else. When I look to the window, he's resting his head on the kitchen table, sleeping. The radio's up there, too, next to him. I walk away. I can't help it. I know I'm supposed to go in there, but tonight doesn't feel quite right. I walk home without looking back. We play cards the next two nights, once at Marv's and once at my place. 
and at my place the doorman comes and sits under the table. I pat him with my feet and study Richie all night. The previous night, when I stood outside his house, the same thing happened. He woke up, entered the kitchen, and listened to the radio. The Hendricks tattoo stares at me as Richie throws down the Queen of Spades and wrecks me. Thanks a lot, I tell him. Sorry, Ed. His existence consists of these late, lonesome nights, waking up at 10.30 in the morning, being up at the pub by 12, and across at the bedding shop by 1. Add to that the odd, dull check, playing a card game or two, and that's it. There's a lot of laughter at my place because Audrey's telling the story of a friend of hers who's been looking for a job in the city. She went through one of those recruiting agencies and they have a policy of giving people a small alarm clock when they get a job. When she got the position, she turned up on the same day to thank the people who hired her and forgot about the clock. She left it on the counter in the main office when she left. The clock was sitting there in the box ticking. See? No one wants to touch it, Audrey explains. They think it's a bomb. She throws down a card. They call the head honcho of the company and he practically shits himself because he's probably getting it off with one of his secretaries and his wife's finally got the better of him for it. She lets her words pause to keep us listening. Anyway, they evacuated the whole building, called the bomb squad, the police, the lot. The bomb squad arrives and opens the box when it starts ringing. Audrey shakes her head. She got fired before she even started. When the story ends, I watch Richie. I want to move on him. I want to make him uncomfortable, to rip him from where he is and put him in his kitchen at 1 a.m. If I can achieve that somehow, I might see a longer version of what he looks like and how he feels. It's just a matter of timing. The time comes half an hour later when he suggests we play cards at his place in a few days' time. About eight, he asks. When we've all agreed and are about to say goodbye, I say, and maybe you can show me what radio station you've got there. I forced myself to be brutal and calculated. The late show must be excellent. He looks at me. What are you talking about, Ed? Nothing, I say, and leave it at that because I've seen the look on his face again now, and I know what it is. I know exactly how Richie looks and feels when he sits there in the paralyzed kitchen light. I go into the blackness of his eyes and find him somewhere far inside, searching through a maze of anonymous, empty avenues. He's walking alone. The streets shift and turn around him, but never does he change step or mood. It's waiting for me, he says as I take my place next to him deep inside. I have to ask, what is Richie? At first, he only continues walking. Only when I look down at our feet do I realize that we're actually going nowhere. It's the world that moves. The streets, the air, and the dark patches of inner sky. Richie and I are still. It's out there, I imagine him saying, somewhere. He walks with more purpose now. It wants me to come for it. It wants me to take it. Everything stops now. I see it so clearly in Richie's eyes. Inside them where we stand, I say, what's waiting, Richie? But I know, without question, I know. I only hope he can find it. When everyone's left, I share another coffee with the doorman. After about half an hour, we're interrupted by a knock at the door. Richie, I think. 
Doorman seems to nod in agreement, and as I walk over and open it, Hey, Richie, I greet him. You forgot something? No. I let him in, and we sit at the kitchen table. Coffee? No. Tea? No. Beer? No. You're picky, aren't you? He answers that one with silence, but soon looks at me. He asks with penetration, You been following me? I look straight back and say, I follow everyone. He pockets his hands. You a pervert or something? It's funny, that's what Sophie asked me as well. I shrug, no more than anyone else, I suppose. Well, could you stop? No. His face edges closer. Why not? I can't. He looks at me as if I'm trying to pull one over him. His black eyes say, why don't you enlighten me, Ed? So I do. I go into my bedroom and pull the cards out from the drawer and return to the table. My hand drops them down in front of my friend and I say, Remember when I got that first card in the mail back in September? I told you I threw it away, but I didn't. It flows out of me quickly. I face him and now you're on one of the cards, Richie. You're one of the messages. Are you sure? He attempts to point out that it might be a mistake, but I hear nothing of it. I only shake my head and feel some sweat gather under my arms. It's you, I tell him. But why? Richie's pleading with me, but I don't let it get in the way. I can't let him slink off to that darkness place inside him where his pride is strewn all over the floor in some hidden room. In the end, I talk completely devoid of emotion. I say, Richie, you're an absolute disgrace to yourself. He looks at me like I just shot his dog or told him his ma died. He sits in that kitchen every night. No matter what the voices on the radio say, the words are always the same. They're the words I just spoke, and we both know it. Richie stares at the table. I stare over his shoulder. We both pour over what was just said. Richie sits there like an injury. This goes on for a long time until a certain smell arrives. The doorman walks in. You're a good friend, Ed, Richie finally says, and returns to his usual easygoing expression. He fights to keep it there. And you, he says to the doorman, smell like the sewer. He stands up and leaves. The words repeat themselves around me as the Kawasaki starts up and meanders down the dark, motionless street. That was a bit harsh, Ed, the doorman says. We stand a while in mutual silence. The next night, I'm there again, outside Richie's. Something tells me I can't relent on him. The figure of him becomes visible in the kitchen, but this time he comes out the front door with the radio in one hand and a bottle in the other. His feet fall and his voice calls out to me. Hey, Ed. I step out. He says, let's go to the river. The river runs past town, and we sit there, having walked from Richie's place. We hand the bottle back and forth. The radio talks quietly. You know, Ed, Richie says after a while, I used to think I had that chronic fatigue syndrome. He stops like he's forgotten what he's going to say. And? I ask. What? Chronic fatigue. Oh, yeah, he regathers. Yeah, I thought I had it, but then I realized that, in actual fact, I just happen to be one of the laziest bastards on earth. It's quite funny, really. Well, you're not the only one. But most people have jobs, Ed. Even Marv's got a job. Even you've got one. What do you mean, even me? Well, you're not the most motivated person I know, you know? I admit it. That's pretty accurate. I swig. And I wouldn't call driving a taxi a real job. What would you call it? Richie asks. I think a while before speaking. An excuse? 
Richie says nothing because he knows I'm right. We drink on and the river rushes by. It's been a good hour now. Richie stands up and walks into the river. The water rises above his knees. He says, this is what our lives are, Ed. He's picked up on the idea of things rushing past us. I'm 20 years old and the Hendricks prior tattoo winks at me under the moonlight. Look at me. There isn't a thing I want to do. It's impeccable how brutal the truth can be at times. You can only admire it. Usually we walk around constantly believing ourselves. I'm okay. We say I'm all right. Sometimes the truth arrives on you and you can't get it off. That's when you realize that sometimes it isn't even an answer. It's a question. Even now I wonder how much of my life is convinced. I get to my feet and join Richie in the river. We both stand there, knee-deep in water, and the truth has well and truly pulled our pants down. The river rushes by. Ed, Richie says later, we're still standing in the water. There's only one thing I want. What's that, Richie? His answer is simple. To want. Chapter 6. God bless the man with the beard, the missing teeth, and the poverty. Richie bypasses the pub and the betting shop the next day and actually starts looking for a job. As for me, I've also thought a lot about what was said last night at the river. I'm driving people around the city, being told what to do and where to go. I watch the people. I speak with them. The weather's nice today. The weather's always something. Am I whining? Complaining? No. This is what I chose to do. But is it what you want, I ask. For a few kilometers, I lie that, yes, it is. I try to convince myself that this is exactly what I want my life to be, but I know it isn't. I know that driving a cab and renting a fibro shack can't be the final answer of my life. It can't be. I feel like I just sat down at some point and said, right, this is Ed Kennedy. Somewhere along the line, I feel like somehow I introduced myself to myself. And here I am. Hey, is this the right way? My plump, suited customer questions from the back seat. I look in the mirror and say, I don't know. The next few days are quiet. We play cards one night, and I realize I need to get started on Marv. With Richie on his way, Marv is next in line. I watch him from the corner of my eye, wondering, what the hell do I do with Marv? He works. He's got money. Certainly owns a worse car in living history, but he seems satisfied enough, considering he won't spend any of that money of his to buy a new one. So what could Marv want? What could he need? With with every other message, I waited for the solution to come. With Marv, I'm not sure. For him, I have a different feeling. It moves close and resides somewhere I seem to walk past all the time but never notice. I must see it every day, but there's a big difference between seeing and finding. In some way, Marv needs me. I don't know what to do. Goes on for the next 24 hours, this complete indecision. New Year's Eve has come and gone. The fireworks have swept the sky in the city. Drunken louts have decorated my cab. Shrieking happiness that can only end in bedsheets soaked with the breath of beer and the weight of tomorrow. Everyone went to Richie's place this time, and I made sure to drop in around midnight. His folks were having a party. I shook Marv's, Richie's, and Simon's hand. I kissed Audrey on the cheek and asked her how she managed to get the night off. Pure luck, apparently. 
After that, it was back to work and home, to the doorman in the early hours of morning. That's where I am now. We share a prolonged celebratory drink, and I say, Here's to you, Mr. Doorman. May you live another year. He drinks up, heads over to the door, and lies down. I'm pretty circumspect for New Year's Eve. I guess I'm not really in the mood for celebrating this year. Part of it's thinking of my father as he's not here anymore for these kind of days and nights. Christmas, New Year's. Not that he was ever sober enough to really have an impact, but it affects me nonetheless. I take the tiles in the bathroom down, as well as the fairly scungy tea towel in the kitchen. That was one of my father's idiosyncrasies or superstitions. Never leave anything out to dry as the sun comes up for the new year. Hell of a legacy, I know, but better than nothing. The other reason for my mood is the thought of Marv and what to do. I sift through many things what he's said lately, and what he's done. I think of the sledge game and the sheer patheticness of his car and his preference for kissing the doorman rather than forking out for the Christmas card game at his place. Forty grand in the bank, but always pulling back when it comes to money. Always, I think. And the question strikes me a few nights later as I watch an old movie. What is it that Marv intends to do with $40,000? Yes, I have it. The money. What does Marv need to do with the money? That's the message. I remember what Daryl and Keith told me about Richie. They said I should know because he was one of my best friends. This nearly cajoles me into thinking I should also know what Marv needs with the money. Maybe it's right under my nose, I wonder, but nothing's immediately apparent. And I understand that with Marv, my knowledge of him is what I have to use to get the message out of him. I might not know the message, but I know Marv and the options I can go through to figure this out. On my front porch, I sit with the doorman and the setting sun. I consider three tactics for Marv. Tactic one, argue with him. This could be done quite easily by bringing up the subject of his car and why he refuses to buy a new one. The danger here is that Marv could become so heated that he'll just storm out of the room and I won't learn anything. This would be nothing short of disastrous. The advantage of this option is, first of all, that it could be fun and it might actually make him buy a new car. Tactic two, get him so mind-numbingly drunk that he spills the message without even thinking. Dangers in coercing Marv into a drunken stupor I might need to put myself in the same condition. This will leave me in no state to comprehend, let alone remember what I have to do. Advantages. No actual message extraction involved. I'd be hoping he just comes out with it. Highly unlikely, I realize, but perhaps worth a shot. Tactic three. Come straight out and ask. This is the most dangerous option because it can result in Marv becoming completely obstinate as we know very well he can be, refusing to tell me anything. If Marv feels discomfort at my sudden extra concern for him, well, let's face it, I usually act like I couldn't care less about him. All other hopes and opportunities could be lost. The advantages are that it's honest, upfront, and considerably low maintenance. It either works or it doesn't, largely depending on timing. What tactic do I pursue first? It's a difficult question, and only when I've turned it over several times do I find the right answer. The unthinkable happens. A fourth avenue stretches out 
and places itself in my hand. Where? The supermarket. When? Thursday night. How? Like this. I walk in and buy a good fortnight's worth of groceries and come out struggling with my bags. They're already cutting into my hands as I walk out the door, so I put them down for vital repositioning. An old homeless man confronts me quietly with his beard, his missing teeth, and his poverty. His expression bleeds. He begs me timidly if I might have some change to spare. He speaks with humility on his lips. As soon as he said it, his eyes buckle to the ground with shame. He's broken me, but doesn't know it until he finds me searching my jacket for my wallet. At that exact moment, as my fingers feel for the money, the answer comes to me. It falls down at my feet, staring up. Of course! The inner voice rises up and reports the answer in an instant, perfect thought. I even speak it to believe it, to remember it. Ask him for money. I mouth the words barely loud enough for my own ears to pick them up and put them back inside me. Sorry? The man asks, still in his quiet, humble voice. Ask him for money. I say again, but this time I speak it louder. I can't contain myself. Out of habit, the old man says, I'm sorry, sir. His expression sags. I'm sorry to be asking you for change. I've pulled a $5 note from my pocket and I hand it to him. He holds it like it's biblical. It must be rare for him to be given notes. God bless you. He looks mesmerized with the money as I pick up my bags again. No, I answer, God bless you. And I make my way home. The bags slice through my hands, but I don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. And that is the end of chapter six. So Ed comes up with the grand idea um, in trying to figure out how to determine exactly what his message is supposed to be for Marv. He kind of comes up with a eureka moment to ask him to borrow money because he does know that Marv has $40,000 saved up. And he doesn't know why. And it suddenly occurs to him that maybe there's the mystery to Marv. So that is the end of chapter 6.